Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Happy New Year. Only Jesus can begin a parable with a joyous celebration of a wedding feast and end it with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, well, it is a joy to be up here to open the Word of God with you uh, today. Um, we are back into our sermon series of Matthew. We left off at the end of chapter 19, uh, just before we started our Advent series. So we're jumping ahead slightly today, skipping a couple chapters. Don't worry, we are going to go back and cover those chapters uh, just like we normally do. Um, but we thought that it would be uh, helpful, fitting even uh, on New Year's Eve <coughs> to have our hearts and our minds dwell on some pretty sobering words from our Lord Jesus. But though these words are sobering, uh, I hope that they... They're sobering and challenging. I hope that by God's grace uh, and by the power of the Spirit that these words would uh, not only sober us, but bring fresh life and encouragement to our souls. So uh, let me pray one more time before we jump in. Pray with me. Uh, Lord, we do pause now to look at your word, and we ask for much grace and much help. Would you open our eyes to see wondrous things from your law? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Spirit of God, show us Christ. Show us 
Christ. It is him alone who can satisfy our hearts. And we want to see him. We want to know him. So help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Where is your life headed? Where is your life headed? Have you asked yourself that question lately? We live in such an immediate, here and now, instant gratification, same-day delivery type of society. It's hard to pause and ask the real questions of life. The ultimate question of, where are we going? We hardly stop to consider this question. Are you headed towards a glorious future with Christ in heaven? A path that Jesus called the narrow way? Or are you on the broad path that leads to ultimate death? You might say, I know I'm headed to heaven. Okay? How do you know? Where does your assurance for that hope lie? My guess is if I went out to the streets, some metropolitan area and asked, surveyed 100 people on the streets, it's almost a certainty that everyone would tell me they're going to heaven. Very few would say no. I mean, why wouldn't God want me in heaven? Sky high certainty. I might then ask, well, why are you so certain? I might hear answers like this. You've heard these before. I'm mostly a good person. I, I try to do more good things than bad things. I try to obey the Ten Commandments, maybe. Uh, I'm going to heaven because God loves everyone and would not let anyone go to hell. Those are some reasons we might hear out there. But what about you? What about here? What reasons might you give? Here's some that I've used maybe in my life. I go to church. I go to church very regularly. I grew up in a Christian home. My parents are Christians. My grandparents are Christians. My siblings are Christians. Or I said a prayer to God once. What assurance do you have that heaven is your future? The parable we are looking at today from our Lord Jesus will help us to see that heaven is for those who accept God's gracious invitation and who are dressed in the right clothes. Heaven is for those who accept God's gracious invitation and who are dressed in the right clothes. Before we dive into the parable, uh, let's take just a minute to see the context of what's happening here. Where Jesus is at and who Jesus is talking to, those things. What has led up to this point? Well, if you think back, you can recall back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew tells us that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 16 is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is now heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. Jesus then 
in chapter 20 and 21, he enters Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey to the praises of Hosanna in the highest. He spends time teaching in the temple. And then as he was teaching one morning in the temple, he was interrupted, accosted by the chief priests and elders of Israel. They say, what authority do you have to say these things? Where did this authority come from? Jesus responds, well, let me answer your question with a question. Where did the baptism of John come from? From, Was it from man or was it from heaven? The Pharisees gather together and discuss what they're going to say. They don't know, or they're too afraid to say. Jesus would then reply, well, you don't know? Well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But I do have a few stories to tell you. Do you have a few minutes? Jesus then begins leveling a series of parables at these, at these chief priests and these Pharisees while in the temple. Jesus knows what his mission is. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He's heading towards the cross. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows what his mission is, and he knows that his mission is being rejected. And so he's confronting them for their unbelief. Each parable is one of rebuke and indictment. Jesus says in chapter 21 that these leaders have rejected the cornerstone. And therefore, Matthew 21, verse 43, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And then we come to our text today, Matthew chapter 22. So let's walk through this parable together. Let's see what Jesus wanted the parable to communicate, and then hear the sobering, the startling uh, end that I hope is instructive for us today. Verses 1 through 6, we see a king's gracious invitation. Verses 1 through 6, we see a king's gracious invitation. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. A king has a joyous event planned, a wedding celebration for his son. The invite list has been planned out already. He sends out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. At the last minute, the day of the feast, they refused to honor the king's invitation. This was a complete violation of cultural norms to reject an invitation to a wedding celebration, a party, let alone a party thrown by a king for his son. The king at first seems undeterred and then extends a second invitation, a more compelling invitation. Verse 4, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. The king wants those who were invited to know what great lengths he has taken to get the wedding feast ready. Extravagant measures have been taken to make this feast happen. The oxen 
and the fattened calf have been slaughtered. And this, this is a type of thing that doesn't happen often. This would be just the start of the party. Wedding celebrations often lasted for days. Something big was going on here. And the king wants these people to know that. What a display of generosity and grace. The king exercises patience and persistence. He is gracious in extending not just one invitation, but two invitations. But they still don't come. Verse 5. They paid no attention. They ghosted him. They snubbed the king. They were indifferent. They offended him. They rejected his invitation. And therefore, they have rejected his gracious rule and authority. They didn't want to honor the king. Some went back to their farm and their businesses and chose the God of money over a feast with the king. Not only did they show indifference, but they displayed hatred and violence. Those who were invited abused and killed the king's messengers. Verse 6 says, says, they seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. Not only did those who were invited reject the king, but they rejected his servants as well. They responded to a generous, gracious invitation with indifference, hate, and violence. And Jesus is clearly showing, clearly showing the religious leaders of Israel how they have rejected the offer of lavish grace. This wedding feast, which is a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb, a celebration of Jesus and his bride, the church, this wedding feast, which we can say is representing eternal life with God in heaven, this feast has been rejected. Now, this may have been lost on the Pharisees as Jesus is talking to them, but it wasn't lost on the original readers of Matthew's gospel. It's not lost on us today, 2,000 years, this side of the cross. This is a picture for us of free and lavish grace that God would set before us a feast of epic proportions. And he says, come, everything is ready. I've done it all. What a tragedy that the free grace of God was so despised and so rejected. So we see a king's invitation in verses 1 through 6. And in verses 7 through 10, we see a king's response. How would the king respond to rejection like this? How would the king respond to this type of rebellion? The king responds in two ways. In wrath and in mercy. The first is wrath. Verse 7. The king was angry. His rule and his reign were being rejected. He was dishonored. And for him, there was only one way to respond to this type of rejection. Anger and judgment. 
those who murdered his servants were put to death and their city was destroyed. And there are a couple of ways we can interpret verse 7. I think there are a couple of likely interpretations. I think one of them would be that Jesus is talking about and prophesying about the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem in the year 70 AD. It's also might be uh, anticipating the final judgment that maybe the prophet Amos spoke of. But I don't want us to miss the main point here. We can't miss the main point that Jesus is trying to get across. This is a wrathful response from God against rejection. From Israel's rejection. Rejection of the king. Rejection of the king's son. Rejection of the king's servants. Verse 7 shows us that God is a God of justice and will execute his justice against those who reject his gracious, generous, joyful rule and authority. The king's first response is wrath, but he also responds with mercy. He issues another invitation. This invitation would go out to anyone, anyone and everyone. Verses 8 through 10. And he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Simply put, the party must go on. Everything is still ready. The wedding feast for his son must still happen. Now, the main roads considered were considered to be the place of mass gatherings of people, maybe on the edges of cities. This is where common people lived, the non-elites of society. The king says, go, go to the main roads. Invite anyone and everyone you can find. I want my wedding feast to be full of guests. Matthew brings out an interesting point here. Invite both bad and good. Invite both bad and good. Those from all types of backgrounds. Don't stop and evaluate who you're inviting. People from every stripe and color. Invite the lowly. Invite the despised in the world. Maybe like tax collectors. Maybe like prostitutes. Here we learn something crucial about the kingdom of God. The door is wide open. Jesus is showing us the open invitation of the gospel for all people. The good news of the kingdom is not just for one particular group. It's not just for the nation of Israel, but for the Gentiles, the nations. You and I can be very glad about that. The kingdom of God offers its welcome to all people, both bad and good call of the gospel goes out to everyone. God's grace is not just for people of certain backgrounds, certain income levels, skin color, abilities, or gifts. The king invited anyone and everyone to his feast. And notice what Jesus says in in verse 8, I believe. Those who were invited were not worthy. 
Well, you just had your servants invite anybody, bad and good. So they're worthy? What makes someone worthy of God's invitation? The only thing that makes anyone worthy of God's gracious invitation is the humility to receive it. The open invitation of the gospel has no preconditions to it. You don't have to do anything. You just come. Now, the wedding hall was filled with guests, just like the king wanted. All is well. Smiles and high fives. That's it. Cue the credits. Story's over. But no, that's not the end of the story. We can't end there because that's not where Jesus ends the story. The wedding hall is full, and that's great. But there are some, at least one, who does not belong there. Here's what we see in verses 11 through 14. We saw a king's invitation, a king's response, and now we see a king's demand. Verses 11 through 14. The king comes to look at his guests and notices a man without a wedding garment. Let me just read those verses here. But when the king came and to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. The king wants to come in and relish in his guests. He wants to look at them. He notices a man without a wedding garment. We see that this guy, he's a wedding crasher. Deliberately showing up out of sorts. Today, we might think of him showing up in board shorts and flip-flops while everyone else is dressed with suits and dresses. He doesn't have on the proper clothing for the occasion, and it appears like he knew what he was doing. This wasn't an accident. This was his, his outward appearance only revealed an inward contempt for his host. Jesus asked him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And the man was speechless. He has no excuses to offer. He doesn't offer anything in response. His silence only confirms his feeling of shame and guilt. Friend. Friend. By Jesus. Jesus called Judas friend right before Judas betrayed him. What does Jesus mean by this man not having on a wedding garment? What exactly does the garment represent? This is a pretty important point. This is kind of the hinge of the story. Well, Jesus doesn't exactly tell us what the wedding garment is supposed to represent. But one thing is clear. He is lacking something. The wedding garment represents something that this man does not have. Let me just pull two verses that I think help us 
uh, answer this question. Now, there are many, many more we could go into. We don't have time to do that. I encourage you to study this a little bit more if you're interested. Let me read Isaiah 61, verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. The next verse, Revelation 19. Kind of a surprising verse to go to, but in some ways it's not, because chapter 19 of Revelation is the marriage supper of the Lamb. Verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Sounds a lot like wedding garments to me. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Hmm. So I take these verses. There are many other verses I could go to from Paul. Clothing yourself. Putting on Christ. I think these wedding garments that this man lacked is the righteous robe of the Son, Jesus Christ. But it's a righteousness that leads to righteous deeds. It's a righteousness that covers us and leads us into a different way of living. This man accepted the invitation to come to the wedding feast. Wasn't that enough? This man accepted the invitation, unlike those earlier in our story, but his acceptance was a casual acceptance, not a true, heartfelt acceptance. Truly accepting God's invitation means that you come, but you come dressed in a righteousness of another. And that righteousness will always lead to, as Revelation 19 says, righteous deeds or good works. I don't want you to hear me say anything that sounds like works-based salvation. This is not. Salvation is all of grace. God is the one who has made everything ready for us. We receive this gracious invitation, which is a gift, with empty hands. But life in the kingdom does have demands. We can't show up dressed however we feel like and think that's going to be enough. We must be dressed in the righteousness of Christ, which always leads to a transformed life. This man accepted the invitation to come, but through his indifference and contempt, he shows up improperly clothed. And I wonder if this man is, man or woman is in the room right now. Is this you? This was me. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up as a pastor's kid. I looked the part. I found some sense of safety or security inside a Christian culture. Through my early teenage years, I claimed to be a Christian. I took on the name of Jesus, but my profession was a sham. 
I was a complete hypocrite, living however I wanted to throughout the week or at school around my friends and living completely different than I was in church. You see, I was ashamed to be truly marked as a Christian because I thought it would mean rejection by my friends and my peers. But when Jesus found me and made me his, the very slow process began of conforming my life to honor my Lord. That process is still happening today. I still struggle. I still fail. I struggle with indwelling sin. The issue is not living a perfect life of obedience. The issue is living a genuine life of obedience. With all its ups and downs, with all of its setbacks, going to church and taking on the name Christian because maybe it feels easy to do that. Your friends are going to church. They're doing it. Well, why, why not me? Maybe you enjoy coming to church because it feels more like a social club rather than a spiritual family. On the outside, you're a part of a Christian community, but inwardly, you are far from God. You don't truly know Him. You claim the name of Jesus, yet live a life however you want, void of any repentance, void of any true love for God. Living like that is the same as casually accepting a wedding invitation by a king and showing up without the right clothes on. For this man, this was an outright rejection. It was, a, it was a rejection to come to God on his terms. And this rejection receives a terrible judgment. The king threw him into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The point is clear. If you are found to be in Christ, having on his righteousness, clothing you you are safe you will be saved because he will save you but if you cling to your own efforts your own goodness hoping that a prayer you said all those years ago was enough and you're not willing to come to the king on his terms then all that awaits is judgment a casting out into our outer darkness a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth this is final ultimate, eternal separation from God. And it is horrific. It pains me to talk about it. Jesus ends this parable with verse 14. Many are called, but few are chosen. Now we may have heard those two words, chosen and called, often as Christians hear it in the writings of the Apostle Paul and other places. Paul and Jesus aren't using these words in the same way. Jesus isn't using the words in the same way Paul uses these in, in Romans, per se. I think Jesus is saying something like this. Many have accepted the invitation to come, but few will display a genuine, authentic faith that rests solely in the righteousness of Christ. 
this is a hard saying. And we want to take Jesus at his word. We believe what Jesus says is true. We must let the Bible mess with us and not let us mess with the Bible. If Jesus says broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life and there are few who find it, we must take him at his word. This must confront easy believism theology that following Christ is easy. It's a walk in the park. It doesn't really matter how you live. There's really no serious demands on you. The garment of the righteousness of Christ is what is needed on the day when we are examined and must give account. So, whose clothes will you be wearing? Your clothes or the righteous garment of the Son? Where is your life headed today? Are you on the narrow path that leads to life? Are you looking forward to a glorious future with Jesus in heaven? Brothers, sisters, our Lord Jesus is calling us to a greater faith in following him. So if you are following Jesus today, you say, I am a Christian. Examine yourself as scripture exhorts us to do. And if you know you belong to Jesus, praise him for his gracious invitation. Thank him for his perfect robe of righteousness that now clothes you. And go boldly, go lovingly and serve and give your life in in doing good works for the glory of his name. Nothing better that we could ever do than to spend our lives for the glory of Jesus loving others. Spend your life on good works, knowing that this is what the king demands, because there is a glorious feast ahead. A glorious feast awaits. I would be remiss if I didn't say this is New Year's Eve, and we look forward to a new year starting tomorrow. What better way to jumpstart a life of fruit-producing faith than to grow in our love for the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. Let's devote ourselves to the Word of God in this upcoming year and watch what He can do and will do in us and through us for His glory. And then lastly, friend, You know you are not a Christian. You know that you're far from God. Maybe you've claimed the name of Jesus inwardly. You know you're not. Or maybe you just have doubts that you are. Doubts are real. Doesn't make you a bad person to have doubts. But let today be the day of resolving those doubts. Let today be the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts.
today can be the day of salvation for you. The invitation is open. The feast is ready. Remember the king's words. Everything is ready. Come. Come. Jesus stands as a real savior for real sinners like you and me. So come, sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you because he is full of compassion, love, and power. If you feel your need of Jesus, come and be clothed in his righteousness and live a life of good deeds for the glory of his name. Close with Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. A couple of verses that have been near and dear to my heart for many, many years. Because it reminds me that God's invitation and his welcome never end. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. The invitation is open. Jesus stands as a real savior for real sinners. Come, accept his invitation Wear his perfect robe of righteousness and live a life of good deeds for the glory of his name. If those who are serving communion can come forward, we're going to transition now to uh, taking the Lord's Supper. This is how we end every service because it reminds us that the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus were truly given for us. As sure as you hold the bread and the cup, you can be assured that Christ has truly paid for your sins. We can be confident in the work of Christ. So come, this is a foretaste of the great feast to come. This is just a little taste of what extravagant meal is ahead for us. And God has prepared it all. He's made it ready for us. If you are not following Christ, maybe you're one who says, I just don't know if I'm, if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I know Jesus. I would encourage you not to come forward, but just to s- stay, consider Jesus. Ask someone how you can know for sure you know Christ, that your sins are forgiven. We have friends who will be in the back of the room in a couple of minutes to pray with you. Today can be the day of salvation. For all who are following Jesus, know him as their Lord, your Lord. You may come and take the bread and the cup when you are ready. You may come forward.